This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards. If you're looking to unload your collection and maybe turn some of that old cardboard into cash, Greg Morris can help. Greg's always buying collections of vintage basketball, baseball, football, or hockey cards. If you have modern or ultra-modern graded cards, he'll buy those as well. On top of all that, Greg takes cards on consignment. Go to gregmorriscards.com to sell them your cards, or you can email joe at gregmorriscards.com directly. What's up, everyone? This is episode 158 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. All right, well, I feel like I've got a pretty good variety for you today, so I'm going to run through some things here real quick. Um, I want to talk a little bit about a trimmed Kobe card that reemerged in the past week. I've got a few pieces of mail I want to talk about, including a package I talked about last week that I thought was gone for good. Turns out it wasn't. I've got another installment of Collector Classifieds, and then I'm going to close today's show with a recent adventure I had in Orlando, chasing Pacers autographs, so you know that was exciting for me, and you'll want to make sure to stay tuned for that. Okay, the trimmed Kobe. So late last week, someone on the blowout forums posted an eBay link to a Probstein auction for a 1997-98 Topps Finest Embossed Refractor of Kobe Bryant, number to 74, uh, in a PSA 10 slab. And um, just to give other collectors a heads up, you know, that it was in fact back up for auction and it had been outed as being trimmed before. And um, going back to the you know, original call out or whatever you want to call it. Um, it was someone I've talked about on here before. It was a, a poster I'll refer to as 312 for short. Um, his or her username is really a longer string of numbers. But in June of 2020, they posted a picture of the card as a PSA 9 and then as a PSA 10. But there was a small chunk of the bottom that was removed. Um, and that was when it was listed at PWCC is when it was a PSA 10. Um, and then there was a note on that PWCC listing that said, be advised, this item was previously listed for sale by PWCC when concerns arose around alteration and or the accuracy of the professional grade. So there are two possibilities there, an and or. Um, and this item was subsequently resubmitted to PSA for their technical review. Upon review, the grade was confirmed accurate by PSA, and this item is now being presented again on the marketplace which was interesting because the before and after pictures indicate, you know, pretty clear trimming, or at least it looks like it. And on top of that, one of the die cuts got damaged, possibly when it was being slabbed, which would mean the grade wasn't correct either. So not only was it altered, but even if we ignore the alterations, it wasn't a PSA 10. Um, so anyway, it sold then, and guess what? It sold again. It reemerged this week with Probstein. And well, I thought to myself, surely no one will pay top dollar for this, seeing as all of this questionable history is readily available with a quick Google search. And of course, I was wrong. Uh, there were 70 bids on this card, and it sold for over $17,000, which was you know, relatively shocking to me still, because if you're going to shell out that kind of money for a card, 
I would assume you would want to do some research on it. And I got to thinking, you know, there are a number of things that could have occurred here. Hey, maybe this is a newer collector. They've got a lot of money, uh, but maybe they're not aware of trimming. Uh, now, throughout the history of the show, I, I've tried to cover card fraud objectively. And a lot of it's revolved around patch swapping because that's what I've studied the most out of everything. Uh, but I do get a lot of trimming questions in my inbox too. And let me clarify, I don't mind that at all. I try to answer every question I can, but a lot of them repeat. So after receiving some of these inquiries um, and seeing this Kobe card again, I figure, hey, you know, I'm about to enter the third year here of the show. It might be a good time to revisit a list of frequently asked questions, and I can always direct people back to this episode in the future if need be. So here goes. Um, the first question regarding trimming that I get a lot that I want to tackle is, why do people trim cards? And the short answer to this is greed. You guys know how big grading has become in our hobby. The cleaner the card, the higher the grade, the higher the grade, the higher the price. It's pretty simple. Um, now, were people trimming cards before grading was a big thing? Yes, they were. So I'm not, I don't want to put this whole blame on grading. Um, in fact, I've, I've heard a number of stories about trimmed cards being circulated at shows in the 80s, you know, back when people actually had to come to a consensus on a card's condition, and there wasn't a third party there that could decide that for them. So, you know, in theory, could someone trim a card today just because they think it looks nicer that way raw? Sure. But in today's hobby ecosystem, I, you know, I'd be willing to say if someone's trimming a card, they're likely going to try and get it in a slab as well. And I'll touch more on trim cards and grading companies here in a few moments. But the next question that I get a lot is, how do people trim them? Um, and, you know, I don't know every method that people use, and even if I did, I don't think I would go into extreme detail here. Um, I can't tell you what the most efficient methods are, but I'll, I'll tell you some of the things that I've seen or heard. Um, I've seen people talk about using standard paper cutters, um, which, you know, doesn't seem all that efficient, but when you see some of these trim jobs that are getting by, sometimes they're not very clean at all. Um, then there was also an instance, I guess someone took that to the next level, there was an instance where a trimmer posted a classified ad on an engineering school message board asking for a cutter to be modified to trim small pieces of cardboard. Yes, you heard that right. Well, guess what? You know, someone found it. And I can only imagine the deer in the headlights look that this guy had on his face when a blowout poster tracked that post down and linked it to the cards he had trimmed. That was a, a wild story. If I haven't told that on here before in detail, I might have to do that someday. Um, I've also seen posts dating back to the 2000s talking about people using expensive laser cutters. So lasers aren't anything new. Um, regardless of whatever methods used, though, for a lot of people, I think one of the next logical questions would be, well, shouldn't all cards be the same size? Can't we just measure them? Well, in a perfect world, all cards are cut the same size from the factory. But if you've ripped enough products over time, you know that's not the case. There's some variance, even if it's minor. And we know that some guys have figured out how to trim as little as uh, 130 of an inch. So you won't always be able to tell just by measuring. And it gets even trickier with vintage cards. There have been instances where cards were cut uh, larger than normal, straight from the factory. So in theory, those could be trimmed and they'd still measure the same as a standard size. Or then on the flip side, you know, if there's all these cards that are getting cutting, cut big... Um, there are also cards that are getting cut small in production, and even though they've never been tampered with, they'll get kicked back from grading companies saying they don't meet the minimum size. Now, 
On top of that, and on top of the variance from the factory, some vintage cards have been pressed, which flattens them out and allows them to be trimmed to size. So while all cards should stay in the general, you know, same general range, you probably can't rely solely on dimensions to determine if they've been trimmed or not. That segues into my next question then. You know, let's say you're planning to buy a card. Um, How can you determine if it's been trimmed or not? How can you safeguard yourself against making a bad purchase? Well, I wish I could sit here and say, if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll be fine. Unfortunately, it's not that easy. And some of these things can only really be determined if the card is in hand. Well, as you know, I would say, you know, the majority of sports card purchases probably take place online. So the best piece of advice I have for you is is to study patterns and trends. Whatever set you're looking at, take some time to familiarize yourself with some of the characteristics of that set. For example, there are a lot of 96 credentials and 2009 exquisite cards that look a little off. Well, they might actually be okay, you know, as a lot of these cards from these sets emerge from the factory with a diamond cut. So, you know, that could scare some people away when in all reality, it could actually get you a good deal because you, you know, you might feel better about it than they would. Um, or if you're in the market for, let's say, a, a 2003-2004 LeBron SP Auto number to 500, you need to know that there are more than a handful of those that have been outed as being trimmed. So just try and get as much knowledge as you can on the history, on the player, uh, those kind of things. If your card is serial numbered, you might do a little internet sleuthing to see if it's been outed already, you know, like this Kobe. Uh, there's a lot of good information on Blowout, including an altered cards reference sheet that I helped put together. You know, it's only got a very small percentage of outed altered cards listed, but it's a good starting point nonetheless. Um, Another thing you could try and do is to trace the line of ownership back, which for some cards will be nearly impossible. But there are plenty of instances where, you know, people have pulled cards and then they've kept them for all these years and now they're finally getting rid of them. We saw that some during the the pandemic era. So, you know, you never know. Um, And then finally, you can't just trust a card just because it's in a slab. Grading companies are human. They make mistakes. Sometimes those mistakes are sent back to them and they make that mistake again. Um, And a lot of the altered cards that have been outed were only discovered because someone took the time to go back on WorthPoint or another online archive and match the old pictures to the new ones. You can't reasonably expect a grading company to do that. They don't have the time. They don't have the resources it's just, you know, until they come up with a, a real, maybe high price service that I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and even then some card doctors have been able to cut and then doctor a card so that the edges look like they've been factory cut. And, um, there's some technology out there that's getting better at detecting this kind of stuff. And I think the grading companies have some of that, at least from what I've seen, a couple grading companies have that. But I can't imagine these companies are taking the time to run every card through in the same way. So like I said, um, those are just some of the questions I get about trimming on a regular basis. There's a lot more info out there if you want to dig for it. Those were just some of the basics. But at the end of the day, if you don't feel completely comfortable about a purchase you're about to make, whether it's $17 or 17000 my advice would be that, you know, you just shouldn't make it. All right, well, um, that was the frequently asked questions for trimming. And you know what? I I hate that I have to go through all that. Um, I hate what trimming has done to our hobby, but, 
you know, it would be foolish for us to ignore it. Just like some of you are ignoring the trimming that needs to happen in your own lives. Yes, you heard that right. Truth be told, sometimes a little conservation is necessary. Coincidentally, this week's episode is brought to you in part by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. And guess what? They recently launched the Ultimate Men's Hygiene Bundle, the Performance Package. So what all is included in this package, you might ask? Well, if you order today, you get the Lawnmower 4.0, a trimmer that's designed to reduce grooming accidents, and uh, that's kind of important. You guys, of all people, know how bothersome surface issues can be. You get the Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer. You get the Crop Preserver Below the Waist Deodorant. And you get the Crop Reviver Below the Waist Toner. And if that's not good enough for you, Manscaped even threw in two free gifts, the Manscaped Boxers and the Shed Travel Bag. It's time to take care of yourself, guys. Go to manscaped.com and get 20% off plus free shipping with the code WAX, W-A-X, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code WAX. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. The only trimmer endorsed by the Wax Museum podcast. Okay, Uh, I told you guys at the start of the year I was looking for another sponsor for the show. Believe it or not, Manscaped reached out to me. Um, They sent me a performance package, and we're on a bit of a trial run for this next month, so if you guys really like the product, who knows, you know, this could become more of a long-term thing. So that's up to you. In the meantime, I figure I'm going to have a little fun with this thing either way. Okay, on to the mail. So last week, I shared a story that was almost a month in the making where I lost an eBay lot that I was planning to buy, primarily for one card, a Louis Dampier Flawless Patch. I messaged the seller, asking him you know, to pass my info along to the buyer. The buyer reached out to me, and we made an easy deal. Um, He ended up shipping me a $50 card in a plain white envelope uh, without tracking, and it seemed like said envelope got lost in the mail. Um, The seller was relatively easy to work with, he refunded my money, and we both considered the card long gone. Well, shortly after that episode went live where I talked about all that, I came home from work one day and Mrs. Wax Museum said, you got one of those pink slips saying that you owe money on a package. It's $4.12 to be exact. And I looked at the sender's name and lo and behold, it was the guy that said he had shipped me the damn pier, which normally I wouldn't know a seller's name, but I had seen this name in my inbox a lot. So, you know, I retrieved this thing from the post office, and while I was relieved that it had finally showed up, I think I was still in a little bit of disbelief. Not at the fact that it actually showed, but more so the way that it showed up. Because this thing was tucked into a plain white envelope that was stretched nearly a half an inch thick, Um, There was an inch-sized tear on the front where the tracking label should be, and then there was one lone forever stamp adhered to the top right corner. Now, can you imagine sending a $50 flawless patch with a forever stamp? You know, at the very least, slap eight or nine of those things on there. When he told me he had sent it without tracking, I just assumed that it still had, um, you know, sufficient postage. I thought, you know, maybe he put four or $5 stamps on there, But no, once again, I'm assuming way too much, uh, making myself out to be an idiot. He, in fact, did not. Um, Surprisingly, the card was not damaged throughout this whole process, not even a scratch. So that was a major relief. 
And I had misread our previous messages. I thought he had told me, hey, you know, shoot me $10 if you, this thing ever shows up. No, he actually said take $10 off. So he still wanted 40 bucks. And I, you know what, I paid him because technically it got here and it arrived safely. Um, I don't see myself buying from him again anytime soon, but never say never. Uh, as for the actual card, because, you know, I never got a chance to talk about that, but now that it's here, I can. This is my sixth Spurs patch of Louis Dampier from Flawless, but the first gold version, and those are numbered to 10. As you guys know, patches come in all types of configurations, but this is a real nice chunky piece that looks like the top of the letter T from San Antonio. So if you haven't done so already, um, check out my social media. It should be on there, or at least I'll be posting it soon if I haven't. And um, I hadn't seen one of these listed in a while, and between being buried in a random eBay lot and then all the postal drama that happened after that, it's a wonder that this thing even got in my hands. And uh, it makes it all the more meaningful now that it's here. All right, the next piece of mail that I got was a um, President's Choice Solitaire 2.0 nameplate letter of Reggie Miller. And this is an unlicensed product that Steve mentioned in our conversation a couple weeks ago. Uh, I kind of got him into the product as well. I'm pretty sure I've talked about it on the show in the past. Um, I opened a couple boxes of it on my YouTube channel. You can see that. Um, the sole reason I was opening those boxes, though, was because I was chasing Reggie Miller nameplate patches, and I don't think I mentioned that on there. You know, it's not really an approach that I'm excited about, you know, opening a product in the hopes of pulling that one specific card. In most cases, you're better off buying singles, which is what I do, but this product wasn't getting ripped, so I was trying to take matters into my own hands. Uh, I've also done that with Tops Total, where I opened over 20 boxes of Tops Total and never pulled a Pacers Gold or a Pacers Plate, which is what I was searching for. Anyway, as it turns out, though, in this case, this um, aggressive approach still paid off because through those box break videos I did on YouTube, I met another collector that was aggressively pursuing Hulk Hogan cards from the same product. And he opened several cases of it and um, he sold me one of the Reggie nameplate cards that never even made it to eBay. So that was nice. That was a few months ago. It wasn't the one I just now got, but I don't think I ever showed that one off. So it's interesting how that approach still paid off in a way that I didn't envision. Well, and then it paid off even more. Since then, we've kept in touch, and I, I've helped him track some Hogan stuff down, and he's alerted me to some Reggie patches he saw on YouTube breaks. That included the letter M that I got this past week that recently showed up in a Canadian breaking group. Um, that was the letter I wanted the most. That was why I was holding out. I was trying not to talk about it too much because I was scared. You know, if I bring a lot of awareness to this thing, it might sell out from under me, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I got it. Um, so anyway, this, this letter shows up and, um, he suggests that I email the breaker and ask for the contact info of the winner. And that's what I did. And we ended up texting and calling a couple times and we worked out a deal where I would pay the winner of the card and then the breaker would have it shipped to me. And it worked out really well for both of us. So I got the card I was looking for and he made an easy sale without ever having to package it up and, and ship it out himself. Um, you know, I, he was kind of surprised on the phone. He kind of got a chuckle out of that saying how easy it was, even though, you know, I, I gave him a very fair price for it. Um, but anyway, as I mentioned earlier, this is an unlicensed product. It's created by Dr. Brian Price, a guy who's been behind some other stuff like that before, like famous fabrics and in the game. 
Um, I know some people stay away from unlicensed stuff. That's fine. I'm not going to try to convince you either way, but um, we never got a Panini nameplate for Reggie, and I probably wouldn't have been able to afford one anyway, so this gives me a chance to own one at a portion of the cost. Um, The next step for me will be trying to track down when he wore the jersey. Do I have to do that? No, but you guys know that I'm in that I'm into that sort of thing. So um, this is from one of his navy pinstripe jerseys, which means he could have worn it in any one of eight seasons. I have all eight of those seasons broken down in an Excel spreadsheet. I haven't found any definitive matches yet, uh, but I haven't given up. And that'll probably be something I have to come back to in the summer because it's kind of a ridiculous chase. Okay, continuing the unlicensed trend. The final card that I'm going to talk about today is a Daryl Dawkins patch from Leaf's recent Art of Sport release. And like most Leaf cards I purchased in the past, I bought this for the material. Because it doesn't have a picture of Dawkins anywhere on the card. It's just got his small red and blue number 53 jersey pictured in the top center of the card. Uh, but the patch window is pretty big. It, you know, think like limited logo size. So it's a pretty big patch window and I'm happy about that. Um... There are a few Dawkins relics out there from Upper Deck that I've had the chance to purchase that featured a picture, you know, that feature his 76ers uniform that he's he's known for, but I never grabbed any of those. So what? why did I gravitate towards this Leaf patch? Um, the main reason is that it features a patch from a Utah Jazz jersey, which makes it super unique because it's kind of like a Patrick Ewing Sonics card or a, a Hakeem Olajuwon Raptors card. But this one is even more obscure than those examples, because according to Wikipedia, Dawkins was traded to the Utah Jazz in a seven-player, three-team trade during the 87 offseason, and his tenure there lasted just four games before the Jazz traded him to the Pistons for a pair of second-round picks and an undisclosed amount of cash. So he only played four games for the Jazz, and of those four games, only one of them was a road game. It was a November 14th game against Houston. Um, So unless he wore another road jazz uniform in the preseason, the logical conclusion would be that he wore this purple jersey in that game, that one game. Um, I've studied this kind of stuff a lot in the past, and, and over time I've learned if it's any game from like, you know, the year 2000 on, there's likely pictures of it in, on Getty. But um, anything before then can get real tricky. In fact, I've yet to find a single picture of Dawkins in a Jazz jersey on Getty Images or any site for that matter. And that's both the home and away version. So if I want to continue this search, I'm probably going to have to do the all, you know, try some alternate sources like media guides or programs or maybe newspaper archives and go from there. I did, however, track down a picture of the jersey before it was cut up. And, um, when I first saw one of these Leaf cards show up, I searched Daryl Dawkins' game-worn jazz jersey, and a couple results showed up on the first page uh, of Google. Um, the Lone Road jersey was an old heritage auction that was originally from 2014 and then it resold in 2019, and I just kind of assumed it was that one without putting too much work into it. Well, a week or two later, a listener named Matt messaged me on Instagram, and somebody that I've interacted with multiple times, you know, plenty of times before, and he said... I totally got my wax museum research going. I saw this Daryl Dawkins patch on the bay. Like you, I have an affinity for nice patches of legends. And then before he could even post a picture of the jersey, I said, it's the jazz one, right? 
Um, and it was, which is probably a testament to why we get along so well. So, um, but he had done something that I hadn't done yet, and he showed it to me. He matched up the jersey holes from the, the some of the leaf patches to the whole jersey in the entire um, gray flannel listing. And, and the good news is, or I think, I'm sorry, heritage listing. And the good news is um, they matched up. So we know that it's the same jazz jersey from that listing. And that could be really important information later on, especially if I find a picture and I need to match a different section of the jersey. Um, and you know, occasionally I buy a card and it triggers a memory that's tucked deep inside my mind. Uh, one that's something I hadn't thought about in a long time. And this is one of those instances. So, um, you know, humor me here. You're going to get a little bonus story from me before I close this segment out. Because I actually met Daryl Dawkins back in the summer of 2013. Um, well, it's not like we actually sat there and formally introduced ourselves. I say I met him. I got his autograph. Um, at the time, I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I was about to move back to Florida, and there was some sort of a food and wine festival downtown. Well, you know, that kind of stuff doesn't really appeal to me. I'm more of a Circle K Polar Pop kind of guy, but um, inside of this festival, they announced they were going to have some sort of NBA event that included a Sprite Slam Dunk Showdown. And some of the people scheduled to attend as judges included Harrison Barnes, Daryl Dawkins, and Muggsy Bogues. And I'd met Muggsy before, but I'd never autographed the other two guys, so I dug out my lone Harrison Barnes card at the time because he was still fairly new to the league. Um, and then I ordered three 1986 Fleer Dawkins for $3 a piece. And I headed downtown uh, come the day of the event. And you know, when you autograph in an area or a city long enough, you make friends and you start to work as a small pack. So our little pack of people, it's not very big, maybe four or five guys, gets to the Harrison Barnes line, and we're the only ones there. And the lady running the line, though, she was holding Harrison to a strict one item per person per visit. Um, but we could get back in line. And remember, there was no one else in line. Um, and Harrison didn't care, so... I ended up helping a buddy of mine, and I think we went through the line three times. It was just kind of goofy. So anyway, that was how we started the day. And then this slam dunk contest wasn't until later in the day, so our group kind of split up, and we went our own ways. You know, I think some guys had to go to work. Some guys had to do different things. Well, I had the day off, so I was hanging out there by myself. And, um, you know, I wanted to get Daryl Dawkins. That was my main objective, but I, I couldn't get to him before this thing was over, so I was stuck. And, and this was an active crowd of people, too, that I was in, you know, confined in a pretty small space. Um, it, it's weird the things that you remember sometime, but I, I remember this, the Lil Wayne song, Love Me, just blasting in the background and the majority of the crowd singing along. And, you know, if you know it, you know it, but it, it's not a very uh, podcast friendly song. Um, and to take that one step further, I feel like I learned just about every Drake song in the 2011 to 2013 era just from going to NBA games and and NBA events. I'm not complaining though, but um, anyway, I'm in the middle of this crowd still hanging on to my 86 Fleers, and eventually it all paid off. Um, eventually this contest ends, and I make my way up to Dawkins, who's seated. Things were kind of hectic, so I couldn't get a picture like, you know, I normally like to do that. I don't think he looked up anyway, so it wouldn't have mattered, but he was nice enough to sign all three of them for me, and it made for a pretty memorable event. Now, um, 
the reasons I went through this story, there, there's a couple. Number one, I, I'd completely forgotten about it until this card, and, and it's not often that I have a chance to tell a Daryl Dawkins story and people will listen. Uh, but number two, I, I was at a pretty low point in my life in this time frame. Uh, you know, I don't know what the proper term for it would be. It, it really doesn't matter. You know, I guess you could say it was um, a, a bit of an existential crisis, but basketball had become my big escape. And I've talked about going to Bobcats games some before. That was huge for me. Basketball was huge. It gave me something uh, to look forward to. And this day was no exception. So, um, you know, I say all that. I know there are people out there that might try to trivialize what we do. And sometimes we might even do it to ourselves. Oh, you know, basketball's just a game. Or, oh, you know, these are just pieces of cardboard or whatever. But at the end of the day, you enjoy this and you know what it means to you. And that's what matters. So please, whatever you do, don't lose sight of that. Hi, this is Josh. I'm on Instagram as Mesh and Maple, M-E-S-H-A-N-D-M-A-P-L-E. I'm looking for Kyle Korver cards that are serial printed from the early 2000s and also the top stadium club bean team set from 2000-2001. Special thanks to Kyle for giving us this opportunity to reach out to the collector community. Okay, thank you, Josh. One thing I like about Josh's page is that he goes to shops, and he goes to shows, and he digs, and he shows a lot of this stuff off. And he finds a lot of 2000 stuff that I'm really into, and sometimes he makes it available. In fact, I think about three months ago, he sold me a Reggie Miller refractor, so thanks again, Josh. Um, I wasn't, however, aware that he was on the hunt for Kyle Korver stuff, so that's good to know. I figure there's someone out there that might have something for him, so I'll make sure to post his info on social media sometime this week. And I'm going to say this again. I'm having a lot of fun with this segment, and this year I'm on a mission. We are going to find the cards that you guys have been hunting for. All right, before I move into today's final segment, want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com, click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com waxmuseumpodcast.com Hustle, grind, spam, profit. We're the Whip Gods. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, today's mail segment wrapped up with a story about my autographing days. Well, today's main segment is going to talk about my brief return to the autographing world from this past week. So every season, I try to make it to at least one Pacers Magic game in Orlando, and if I can get there early enough, I always try to get some cards signed. With that being said, you know, I've never been too successful in the arena, which is the only place I have access to now. So, you know, of course, last season I got to a game, but they weren't even allowing autographs with the whole COVID situation. And then I think the time before that, I only managed to get Edmund Sumner and Thad Young. So um, this time, however, I felt like I had a few things going for me. Number one, you know, it's late in the season. Um, the Pacers and Magic, they stink, you know, and I was able to grab a ticket in the autograph area. So that means they really couldn't kick me out of there after a while like they try to do. 
Um, in the past, these seats have been too expensive. Now they're a lot more manageable. That's one of the perks of following a team that uh, is not good. So um, I started prepping for this excursion about a week and a half or two weeks out. And I went through all my base cards and low-end parallels to see what cards I could get signed and what I needed to order. So some of the older guys like Lance and Miles, I already had plenty of stuff for. I grabbed some older Prism stuff for them. Some of the new guys like Buddy Heald and Tyrese Halliburton, I already had cards for, but it was all King stuff. So I was undecided on what I wanted to do about that for a little bit. And then the Pacers have a handful of rookies on the current roster. Two of them, of course, Duarte and Isaac Jackson already have cards, so I ordered a couple of those. And then the rest of the rookies don't have anything, so I knew I would have to get a little creative there. Ultimately, um, I decided that I wanted Pacer stuff for both the new guys and the rookies, which meant I would have to make some custom cards. So I started thinking about designs. And my primary target for the outing was going to be Halliburton. You know, he's the new sheriff in town. He's our new star, so to speak. So I'm very excited about him. Um, so I wanted to get something of him in a Pacers uniform. Well, I had just written up last week's segment talking about next day autos, and it dawned on me that he never got one thanks to COVID. So I thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool to make one for him and have him sign it? But then I thought, you know, well, that wouldn't make much sense because I was going to picture him as a Pacer, and then there's really you know nothing next day about that. So instead, I decided to go for a similar looking design, and I called it Game Night Autos. And that gave me a template to use for some of the other guys too. And it would save me a little time in the long run. You know, even though it is still time consuming, I wouldn't have to make a completely new template uh, from scratch for every single guy. So that's what I did. I put Pacers vs. Magic in the top corner. I put the date below that. Although I didn't realize until it was too late being too late being that, you know, they were already signed, that I had put 2021 instead of 2022. Um, so I was very upset about that, but the damage was already done. And um, to top things off, Mrs. Wax Museum told me, you know, she said, well, that error makes it feel more like a real Panini card. Um, so thank you. But um, anyway, underneath that, I had a picture of the player and then it faded into a white spot where they would hopefully be signed. And I showed these off on social media and, you know, I had a, a handful of people ask how they were made. I'll make a YouTube video showing that process at some point. But I got the customs made, and I took those with the cards I already had and attached them to um, scrapbook or divider pages using photo corners. I then put those three pages of cards on a clipboard, and I was good to go. So uh, Mrs. Wax Museum and I got to the arena about 80 minutes before the start of the game, they opened the gates about uh, 20 minutes later, and we made our way down to the visitor's tunnel. From there, it was just a matter of calling guys over when they exited the court from warming up. Um, it helps in this case that I actually knew the players. You know, I've done teams before that I didn't know guys 1 through 15. Uh, the Pacers I know pretty well. So I was able to call everyone uh, without, you know, really straining to figure out who anyone was. And uh, whenever I've done autographs in the past, I've seen players ask for photos or cards if it was something that they had never seen before. Well, seeing as I was making cards of guys, you know, like Terry Taylor and Dwayne Washington and Kiefer Sykes, who'd never had any cards as far as I know, um, I made an extra just in case they asked for one, which none of them did, but I, I would have given them one if they wanted it. And um, when I asked Kiefer Sykes to sign, I, I think he was trying to joke, joke around and he said, you know, I'll sign if you actually have a card of me, um, you know, knowing that he didn't have any cards. Well, the joke was on him. I said, well, yeah, actually I do. 
and uh, he was real cool about it, and, and he signed both of them. I made, I actually made tops, uh, 1972 tops customs for him. And um, overall, all of the players that we saw were receptive to signing, save for Buddy Heald. I don't, and I don't know if he really, you know, ignored us or if he was distracted or he was doing something else. He didn't outright say no. Um, and I've got video of pretty much everyone else though signing on my YouTube, including Halliburton, which was the one guy I was really going for. And that card turned out great in my opinion. So the night could have ended there and it was already a lot of fun, but there was a game after that. Um, a couple weeks ago, I joked with Steve about how I'm rooting for the Pacers to lose games at the moment because I want a higher draft pick. Well, they were losing the majority of this game and then things got close at the end uh, and they ended up winning in overtime, which, you know, whatever. It was still an exciting game. Yes, my team won. Um, and I'm going to keep this game in the back of my mind as Panini continues to release products throughout the course of the year. I've talked about it before, but I like to collect cards that feature pictures from games I went to. There aren't many of them out there, but for whatever reason, they like to use a lot of Pacers Magic games from Orlando. So, um, I've also mentioned before that one of my bucket list items includes getting in the background of a basketball card's I checked Getty Images, and there are a couple shots where you can see Mrs. Wax Museum and myself, um, or one of them has just her, where I'm blocked out of it. But um, you know, one of those pictures I think would be perfect for a Panini card because it's just a player dribbling. I don't think it's likely to happen, but that would be really exciting if it did. And yes, I know that that's probably pretty conceited for me to want to be on a basketball card, but you know, I host a basketball card podcast. It is what it is. These kind of things excite me. So. You know, let's be honest. Wouldn't you want to be on one too? All right. Well, there you have it. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not going to go into too much detail about that game, but just know that it was a, a lot of fun for me. That's a little bit of a glimpse into my in-person NBA game watching experience and what all that involves other than just the game. Um, I only get to do that about once or twice a season, but this is one of the better outings I've had in a long time. So, Maybe you've had, you know, been to a similar game or similar outing this year, or maybe you've already spotted yourself in the background of a card and you want to make me jealous. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast or on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time... This is the Wax Museum Podcast.